Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. I'm Jeremy Heiner. And I'm Sass Elisha. And we've designed these podcasts for you. We're going to be talking about clinical anesthesia topics that you can take into the operating room and improve your practice today. Topics are going to include case management, pharmacology, critical events in a very power-packed, concise episode. And today, we're going to continue discussing shock states and the shock state checklist. However, we're not going to tell you what shock state we're going to be discussing. We're going to give you a scenario and we're going to see if you can figure it out. Ooh, okay. Well, now you've got my attention. Everyone, we know your time is important. So we're going to get right to it. So take some deep breaths and maybe pre-oxygenate yourself because guess what? It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. All right, so backed by research, Jeremy and I believe in reviewing with you the principles related to crisis management. We're going to review the checklist as I discussed, and we are eventually going to make them available to you for free. The use of checklists is only effective when the diagnosis is correct. So we will review differential diagnoses, the rationale for the treatment, the mechanism of action of the medications used for the treatment of the crisis, and today we're also going to throw in some test questions for you who are going to be taking the NCE or the CPCA. Okay, so we'd like to review shock just in general, and this is how we like to think of it. First, shock is an inadequate oxygen delivery to the tissues. So we like to think of the cardiovascular system overall as the tank. This is what contains the intravascular volume. The heart is the pump, which pumps that volume. And the pipes are the blood vessels. And that's what distributes that volume, that blood, to the tissues. Now, when the tank is low, that's hemorrhagic shock. The pump, so the heart, when that when there's inadequacy of that heart, when it's not pumping effectively, those shock states 
consist of cardiogenic shock, such as an MI, or cardiac compressive shock, such as a cardiac tamponade or a tension pneumothorax, putting pressure on the, on the heart itself. And then we have the pipes. So we have a situation where there can be profound vasodilation, such as distributive shock, so neurogenic shock, anaphylactic shock, or septic shock. All right, so that's the brief review of shock and the overall shock states that can occur. So, SAS, why don't we set the stage here with a case? Yeah, let's do this. And as we go through, we'll start to dissect stuff for you a little bit. So, you have a 38-year-old male that comes into the ED after riding a rail on his skateboard. But he fell off and hit his chest and face on the rail. Oh, dude, that is not good. On examination, he has abrasions on his sternum, his chin, and his face. His lungs are clear to auscultation. However, his respiratory rate is fast, and he also has shallow respirations. Odor of alcohol on his breath. He's moving all of his extremities. He's lethargic but responsive to questions. His pupils are reactive to light. And the fast scan of his abdomen reveals that there's no blood in the abdomen. So that's good. Yeah, that is good. And you want to know what I really like about this case is that you've got a 38-year-old who's still riding a skateboard. Absolutely. This is Southern California, remember. (laughs) That's right. So let's talk about his vital signs right now. His blood pressure is 99 over 52. His heart rate's 118. His respiratory rate is 28. His uh, SAT is 97% on 6 liters of oxygen face mass. So... Why don't we talk through some stuff that you're thinking about? What, what are you thinking initially? Okay, so one, we have to think about mechanism of injury, and this is blunt trauma. He fell in his, fa- his chest and his face on the rail. So a number of potentials here. Uh, I'm thinking head injury, facial injury, cervical spine injury from that facial impact on the rail, and then hitting his chest also. We've got some potential rib fractures, sternal fractures, pulmonary contusion, all of that kind of falls into into those into that blunt trauma category. Yeah. And then, you know, the fact, of course, like you said, he hit his head. The fact that he's lethargic. Is he lethargic because he hit his head and he has increased intracranial pressure? Is it the fact that he has alcohol in his breath and he's just uh, way wasted? You know, that's also a possibility. Yeah, yeah. and that really muddies the waters. Yeah, so there's a lot possibly going on here. In terms of his vital signs, you know, you would think a young person who was, you know, compensating would have a high heart rate, but would also have a high blood pressure. However, his blood pressure, despite his high heart rate, was only 99 over 52. So, you know, maybe that's only one blood pressure and it was an errant blood pressure or maybe something else is going on. Yeah. Now, we have some good news here. Uh, the pupils are reactive to light, so when thinking about a head injury, there if, if there really is some increased intracranial pressure, you might have some sluggishness of the pupils. You mentioned the FAST scan, the focus assessment and the sonography of trauma, and it revealed no blood in the abdomen. Part of the FAST scan also looks at the diaphragm and to see if there's any blood in the lower thoracic area. So that's good if there's no blood on the FAST scan. That's also a positive. All right. So let's give you a little bit more. So they take him to CT and the CT of his head and neck are negative for bleeding 
and negative for a vertebral fracture. However, 50 minutes later, his blood when he comes back, his blood pressure drops to 78 over 40, um, and he has decreased systolic pressure during inspiration. His respiratory rate increases to 36 from 28, and now his saturation is 92% on that 6-liter uh, oxygen face mask. Okay, so now we're having some problems. The fact that this patient's blood pressure has significantly decreased and his respiratory rate has increased, his SAT is not holding, there's some issues here. Yeah, so you, you got it. you know, most people would think to themselves, where is he bleeding from, right? So heart rate going higher, blood pressure going lower. You know, the first thing to think about is he's bleeding in his abdomen, but we've already seen that he's not. Yeah, and that's actually something that we should be thinking about because hemorrhagic shock is one of the most common types of shock in whether it's blunt or penetrating trauma. So that's good, but we did the FAST scan. Probably would redo the FAST scan just to make sure. Um, but again, if, if we're, we're doing this scenario, and we're going to say it's negative. So he's not bleeding. Yeah. So we can rule that out. All right, but now with his blood pressure being so low and him starting to significantly decompensate, he's in and out of consciousness. You're concerned about his airway and him being able to control it. So you put him, his head flat and prepare for intubation. You notice prior to intubation that he has fractured teeth as you look in his airway, and he also has JVD. All right, well then let's talk about the airway real quick. So we're getting ready for a traumatic intubation here. So RSI is the way to go. No, no rhyme or reason about that. We're gonna do straight up RSI. Now there's a few issues here. We may or may not have gotten the CT report back. So if for sure, if we have not, we're gonna do manual inline axial stabilization or MILS and MILIS. That way we are putting somebody directly on the cervical spine, making sure that that does not move during the intubation procedure. Next, we should really be using video laryngoscopy in these situations. There is a lot of evidence out there to support its use for trauma and it significantly increases first pass success when that's used. Now, we may have some foreign bodies in the airway. Uh, Sass had mentioned fractured teeth. So we're gonna need to be aware of that and go down really slowly, really carefully with some suction readily available. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Okay, so now SAS, based on the presentation right now, are there anything, is there anything standing out in terms of a shock state for you? 
Yeah. So we've already ruled out a whole bunch of things that this possibly could be. And as you've always talked about um, related to trauma, anything that was negative could then become positive in the very near future. And that's why you said review the fast scan. But let's look at this, something that is not as likely, but certainly could be. We know we hit his chest. We know he has abrasions on his sternum. We know he's hypotensive. When I talked to you earlier about his blood pressure, when it dropped to 78 over 40, I also gave a little bit of more information about his systolic blood pressure decreases slightly during inspiration. And we're going to get to that as a sign related to our shock state. Lastly, as you mentioned, Jeremy, as you lay his head flat, he has JVD. Why is a patient who is young, healthy, and has a blood pressure of 78 over 40, why would they have JVD? Oh, that sounds like a big sign that we should be concerned with. Yeah. So what we have here and what we have for you here today is, drum roll. Cardiac compressive shock. Yeah. (laughs) But you guys already knew that. Exactly. Jeremy and I aren't that mysterious. There's not much not much to us. So let's look at signs and symptoms associated with cardiac tamponade. We know it's a shock state, as Jeremy said, inadequate oxygenation to the tissues. So someone who is alert is going to start having anxiety, altered level of consciousness for sure as their blood pressure falls. In our case, it is um, more complex because the patient... A, hit his head, and B, is also intoxicated. You want to go into some of our respiratory signs and symptoms? Yeah, there are several respiratory signs and symptoms that we should be focusing on. So remember, the mechanism here in cardiac compressive shock is a decrease in cardiac output because of pressure on the heart. So if blood is not going forward, it's going to be going backwards. Now, the patient will respond breathing-wise or respiratory-wise with an increase in respiratory rate, with a shallow breathing rate, with dyspnea, there will likely be wheezing and rails because of the backup of blood into the pulmonary system. And of course, if we're not perfusing well or perfusing the lungs well and blood's being backed up, we may see some hypercarbia, certainly some hypoxia. We saw this with the case presentation. And now we haven't really differentiated the two types of cardiac compressive shock. Earlier we talked about them. There's either a cardiac tamponade or a tension pneumothorax that's putting pressure on the heart itself. So as the blown lung or the downed lung, as air builds up on that side, it's going to put pressure on the contralateral lung and consequently on the heart, no matter which lung is affected. So what we're going to see with a tension pneumothorax is a unilateral breath sound and there could potentially be some tracheal deviation depending on how severe that tension pneumothorax is. Yeah, when now when we look at the cardiovascular signs and symptoms as in any shock state, we always talk about compensated versus decompensated. In a comp- in a compensatory state, what is the patient going to have? Well, they're going to be tachycardic and hypertensive. In a decompensating state, 
They're going to be more tachycardic as our body tries to compensate and increase stroke volume, however hypotensive. And in this scenario, this patient was always mildly hypotensive before he became more severely hypotensive. Other signs, dysrhythmias, ST segment abnormalities, chest pain. Now, the last two that are very specific for cardiac compressive shock. One is called Beck's triad. It's a triad, so that would be three things. And we've already talked about two of them. Hypotension, we have that. JVD. Now, if we also listened to the chest and heard muffled heart sounds, those three things are what comprises Beck's triad, and they are synonymous possibly with cardiac compressive shock or cardiac tamponade. Uh, lastly here, pulses paradoxus, and I gave you the really low blood pressure, but I also gave you the information of when the patient spontaneously breathes and inspires, there's a decrease in his systolic pressure. So let me go into the definition of pulses paradoxus. It is a decrease in systolic blood pressure of greater than 10 millimeters of mercury with inspiration. Why does that happen? Remember, during inspiration, what happens? You increase venous return. In a cardiac compressive shock state, when uh, pressure is pushing in on the heart, when you take a breath in and you increase venous return, because the pressures in the ventricles are so high related to the compression, what happens is the intraventricular septum is pushed from right to left and decreases stroke volume from the left ventricle. Okay, so now we've talked about the signs and symptoms of cardiac compressive shock. Let's talk about the mechanism of cardiac compressive shock. So Sass, can you talk to us about the reasoning why there's cardiovascular compromise that's associated with cardiac compressive shock? Yeah, now you already talked about one of them related to tension pneumothorax. So having a tension pneumothorax on one side and that pressure on one side causing pressure on the heart is going to certainly compress the heart and decrease stroke volume. Right. However, the other mechanism, the mechanism that was specific here, is the patient hit his chest and could be bleeding within the pericardial sac. So that's the mechanism here. Acutely, if someone starts bleeding with the, in the pericardial sac, as little as 50 milliliters of blood can cause complete cardiovascular collapse. As blood accumulates in the sac, and of course the sac is fibrous, as, pressure, as the amount of blood increases, so does the amount of pressure. However, if the amount of blood is significant, all of a sudden, the amount of pressure exerted on the heart is going to be dramatic. It's going to put pressure on the heart. And the heart, when you normally relaxes and fills, isn't going to be able to do that because there's constant pressure. So therefore, with decreased diastolic filling, there's decreased stroke volume. And as this gets worse and worse and worse, blood pressure is going to become worse, meaning lower, until there is no stroke volume. Yeah, and eventually you'll get cardiovascular collapse. Yeah. So this patient was on his way to do that. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about diagnosing cardiac tamponade because that's what's happening in this case. Really what we need is an ultrasound. That's probably going to be one of the fastest ways 
to diagnose cardiac compressive shock is point-of-care ultrasound. So grab the ultrasound machine, put that right on the chest, and this is something that, of course, you'll need to practice with, but you'll be able, once you identify the anatomy, we'll be able to see blood within that pericardial sac. Other diagnostic criteria would, of course, be the signs and symptoms that we've already discussed, and we could consider getting a chest x-ray. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Okay, now, SAS, we've talked about signs and symptoms. We've talked about mechanism. We need to talk about definitive treatment. How are we going to manage this scenario? Yeah, so for a cardiac tamponade where there's bleeding around the heart within the pericardial sac, the definitive treatment is to either have a surgeon do a pericardial window or someone doing a pericardiocentesis. And these days, I'm sure it's done under ultrasound. However, where you would be placing the needle is in the fifth left intercostal space close to the sternal margin. Yeah. Now, if we're talking about the mechanism being a tension pneumothorax, the definitive treatment would be a chest tube. Now, we can do temporizing measures before that chest tube is placed by doing performing a needle decompression of the chest. So wh- whichever side has the pneumothorax, so has has the downed lung, where you would hear no breath sounds, that's where you would be placing the needle. And there are two locations that you can consider. The classic location is the second intercostal space at the midclavicular line. An alternative location is either at the fourth or fifth intercostal space at the anterior axillary line. Now, both can be used, so pick whichever one. And you would be using a large bore needle to penetrate the chest wall and evacuate that air. And whatever the mechanism is, whether it's bleeding around the heart or it's caused by a tension pneumothorax, as soon as that pressure is relieved, vital signs will significantly get better almost instantly. Yeah, this is a shock state that if it's managed quickly and appropriately, you'll see the patient recover very, very quickly. Now, in terms of secondary intervention, so these are things that we would be doing maybe while we're getting ready to perform either the pericardiocentesis or the chest tube, depending on the mechanism. In our case scenario, in the cardiac tamponade, it would be while they're getting ready to do the pericardiocentesis. We should be getting an A-line. We want to see a a real-time blood pressure, so an arterial line, large bore IV access as soon as possible, and let's send some labs. We'll need to get an ABG, electrolytes, CBC, H&H, all the coagulation profile, and let's get a troponin as well, especially right from the start when we're trying to zero in on a diagnosis. We would want to see how the heart is functioning. Yeah, and in terms of the anesthetic considerations, 
trying to use medications and that are not unbelievably potent myocardial depressants. Remember, the more you decrease contractility, the harder you're going to make it on the left ventricle to have an adequate amount of stroke volume despite the pressure. Um, and then in addition to that, being careful with your fluid, realizing that if you're giving lots of fluid to treat the hypotension, very rapidly the patient could develop congestive heart failure. Yeah, and one thing that we can also consider doing, get an EKG. I think that sounds very simple, something easy to forget, but let's get an EKG as well. And drugs also that decrease the heart rate. So be careful with giving significant doses of dexmedetomidine. Um, certainly beta blockers, despite the heart rate being high, would be absolutely contraindicated here. Yeah, calcium channel blockers along that same vein. Yeah. Okay, so now let's go into a couple of questions to uh, kind of tease out some more information as well as we like to throw out some questions that our folks, our students, uh, even our CRNAs might see either on the NCE exam or on the CPCA exam. So this first question is a classic NCE question, and it would go something like this. Which is the induction agent of choice for a patient who is experiencing a cardiac tamponade? Would it be etomidate? ketamine, dexmedetomidine, or propofol. And I think we can all rule out dexmedetomidine since SAS just mentioned that's contraindicated because of the potential decrease in heart rate. Propofol has some pretty significant myocardial depression. Etomidate is an option because it doesn't have a significant myocardial depressant effect, but maybe not the best option. So really what we're left with is ketamine, and ketamine is a great option in this scenario because it indirectly releases catecholamines, which is what we want to do in a cardiac tamponade patient. We don't want to slow the heart rate. We want to keep that going. Basically how the patient comes in, you want to maintain that heart rate, maintain it high. All right, and then our second question, which is the vasopressor of choice for hypotension associated with cardiac tamponade. And this is a choose two. So is it A, phenylephrine, B, ephedrine, C, norepinephrine, or D, epinephrine? And remember what Jeremy was just talking about. What do we want? What is the last thing we want to do? The last thing we want to do is slow the heart rate down. Also, Another thing we don't want to do is dramatically increase afterload. So, therefore, phenylephrine would not be the drug of choice as it dramatically increases afterload. Norepinephrine isn't incorrect. However, it's not as good as both ephedrine and epinephrine because both of those drugs have vasoconstricting effects. However, both have a very significant beta-1 agonist effect and will increase heart rate. So therefore, it would be ephedrine and epinephrine. All right, so, so that's it. But Sass, how, how, did, uh, how did a patient do? Yeah, so because of our prompt diagnosis and treatment, and it was correct, um, patient did fine. He had a pericardial window. Um, his blood pressure came back up to normal. No JVD. His heart rate came down. He, when he woke up, he was neurologically intact. And um, kumbaya, the skateboard man can 
go out and ride those rails again. Ooh, that is good. Let's get him back out there. <laughs> All right, it's nice and sunny here in Southern California, so yep, let's get him back out there. All right, everyone. Hey, you can uh, remember you can earn Class B credits for listening to Beyond the Mask podcast. And if you've liked what you heard, you know, please let us know. Leave a review. We really do these podcasts to benefit all the people who listen, and we really do want to help. And word of mouth is how a podcast grows. So um, please, if you think any of your friends or anesthesia colleagues would like this, please consider sharing the podcast with them. Okay, CRNA Nation, that is it for today. Remember, keep ventilating, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, 
fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.